You know, Johnston's sitting there upright on the ocean floor, buried up to waterline. She still looks like she's underway. Her guns are trained toward the enemy. She's still in her battered, sunken condition, still looks fierce and ready to continue the fight. It must be awe-inspiring. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. This is Stephen Phillips. I have the deck and the con for today's podcast. Today, my guest is Commander Parks Stevenson, U.S. Navy retired. We will be discussing the deep sea expedition to survey the wreck of USS Johnston, DD-557 of Taffy 3 fame, and the forensic analysis that followed. Parks is a 1979 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He is qualified in submarines and aviation, and after retiring from the Navy, pursued a 26-year career as a systems engineer in the aerospace industry. Parks is also a deep-sea explorer. He was a direct report to James Cameron and led a team of naval architects in the production of the peer-reviewed finite modeling analysis of RMS Titanic. Parks is co-author of Exploring the Deep, the Titanic Expeditions with James Cameron. Today, we will discuss Parks's dive into the Hadal Zone to find and survey USS Johnston, making him the second deepest diving Naval Academy graduate behind Don Walsh, class of 1954. Parks, welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you. Place hasn't changed a whole lot since I was last here, about 40 years ago. Parks, I'd like the audience to get to know you a little bit more before we delve into the topic. I noted that it says you're qualified both in submarines and aviation. Please share a little bit more about your naval career. I kind of bounced around the Navy quite a bit during my career. Um, at the Naval Academy, I thought I wanted to go into submarines, and so I volunteered for a couple of submarine patrols aboard uh, ballistic missile submarines. But after meeting with Rickover, I decided I actually was more suited toward naval aviation, and so upon graduation from the Academy, I became a naval flight officer, went to Pensacola, and uh, elected to fly in the E2C Hawkeye, uh, during most of my career. Later on in my career, I would leave the aviation community and transfer over to Amphibs, where I spent the last three years of my career. And that was probably the most interesting time because when you go with the Marines, you do interesting things. I'm aware of that. I've spent some time on an LST. So then how did you become interested in deep sea exploration? Was it back from when you had done patrols as a midshipman? Not really. Um, I've always had an interest in mysteries. And this comes from my early years through my teenage years. I was interested in unanswered questions about Titanic and Amelia Earhart, and JFK assassination, among other topics. And uh, during my 20 years in the Navy, I really didn't, I put all of that stuff on hold. When I got out of the Navy, um, the internet was becoming a thing. And I found myself trolling the um, Titanic discussion groups online and got into conversations with Titanic experts. 
who were involved with research at the time. And I picked up from where I left off 20 years ago. But it was when some of my research made it to James Cameron, and he was able to use that to, um, to identify the Marconi uh, wireless telegraph equipment inside the wreck of Titanic that I got pulled into actual deep sea exploration. Jim Cameron brought me onto his team as a technical advisor. And in 2005, I went out with him to the wreck and not only provided assistance from the control room of the academic Keldish, the Russian support vessel that supported the two mere submersibles that we used to dive, but um, I also got to dive down to the wreck of Titanic itself. And from there, I just followed one mystery after another to where I am today. I love hearing stories like that. It must have been a fascinating and exciting experience to have viewed Titanic through the viewport of a deep sea submersible. Well, this story begins with a group of destroyers and destroyer escorts in the Pacific during the Second World War with a combined call sign of Taffy 3. The events occurred on October 25th, 1944. Can you tell us what happened on that day? Well, from the 30,000 foot level, General Douglas, Douglas MacArthur came up with a strategy of cutting the Japanese empire in half by retaking the Philippine islands. The Philippines lay astride the logistics trail from the home islands of Japan to her resources down in Southeast Asia. And by retaking the Philippines, MacArthur would not only deliver on his promise to return to liberate that country from Japanese occupation, but would also serve to, as I said, cut the Japanese war machine off from its resources. And so on October 20th, 1944, MacArthur went into Leyte Gulf in his invasion to retake the Philippines. Now, the Japanese knew the importance of this and they developed a plan to counteract MacArthur's thrust. It's called a show one plan. And it was a three-pronged response to, to MacArthur's invasion. They had the bulk of their surface fleet come up from Southeast Asia and broke into two groups. One would come up through the Surigao Strait, approaching Lady Gulf from the south. The other, the main body, which was led by the two largest battleships in the world, Yamato and Musashi, were to come in through the middle of the Philippine Islands, a strait called the San Bernardino Strait, while a group of carriers came down from Japan. They had no air wings left aboard these carriers, not to speak of. Most of them had been decimated in earlier battles, but these carriers were used as a lure to draw Admiral Bull Halsey and his third fleet carriers that were supporting MacArthur's invasion away from Leyte Gulf. And this proved successful. Admiral Halsey was unable to resist the temptation to kill more Japanese carriers. And he basically withdrew from the area, leaving the San Bernardino Strait unguarded. The Japanese force coming up to the Surigao Strait were slaughtered in a confined water space by the classic crossing the T maneuver. A line of American battleships, most of them 
had been raised from the bottom from Pearl Harbor, just decimated Nishimura's force as he came up. But Admiral Kurata with the center force, even though they suffered some losses on the way in, they still came through the San Bernardino Strait over the night of October 24th, 25th, and came out into the open waters north of Leyte Gulf, expecting to find themselves confronting Halsey's carriers, but instead they found the rear guard carriers of MacArthur's invasion force supporting the forces ashore. And this were the Taffies, Taffies one, two, and three, and Taffy three being the northernmost, just a formation of six Jeep carriers and a supporting screen of destroyers were right in the way of the Japanese fleet. So what did they do when they saw Yamato and the battle cruisers coming through? So as the sun came up on October 25th, Taffy 3 was getting ready for its normal routine, sending out the early morning anti-submarine patrols and sending the first of the ground support aircraft over land to support the invasion forces ashore. It was a backwater and they were expecting no resistance. They thought that Halsey had their back, guarding the San Bernardino Straits and covering to the north, and with seven fleet ships covering to the south. The still of the morning was shattered when events started happening simultaneously. One of the anti-submarine patrols called in and said, I've got a fleet here, and I think this is the Japanese fleet. So the admiral in charge of Taffy 3, Admiral Ziggy Sprague, when he heard the call that um, there were Japanese ships to north, he immediately assumed that the pilot uh, had actually seen Halsey's carriers and didn't know the difference. But then the pilot came back and said, I've got pagoda mass and I just saw the biggest meatball flag I've ever seen flying off the biggest battleship I've ever seen. And at the same time, from a range of over 30 miles, the first heavy shells from the battleships of the Japanese surface force started landing amongst the ships of Taffy 3. At that point, Admiral Sprague mentally calculated that Taffy 3 had 15 minutes left before annihilation. So what did Captain Ernest Evans and USS Johnston do when they faced the Yamato? So Commander er Ernest Evans, uh, commanding officer of the USS Johnston, as soon as the shells started splashing uh, within the formation, he didn't waste a second. He didn't wait for orders. He immediately gave the order, all ahead flank on the engines. And there was an enlisted guy down on the deck below the bridge. And when he heard Commander Evans shout out, all ahead flank, he goes, oh, great. We're gonna, we can outrun the Japanese fleet. But then the next command he heard, right full rudder, his heart sank because he knew his captain, who a year before during the commissioning of the USS Johnston had said, I have a fighting ship and I intend to take it in harm's way. And if anybody does not want to come along with me, they better get off now. Well, Evans was delivering on that promise. He drove uh, Johnston directly toward the teeth of the Japanese guns. So Commander Evans 
has ordered USS Johnston to close with the Japanese flotilla. What happened next? So it appears that Commander Evans went toward the, the, the most emergent threat. And in this case, once the Japanese commander came out of the strait, he saw carriers in the distance. He thought they were Halsey's carriers and they weren't launching aircraft toward him. So in, in the Japanese commander's mind, the first thing they had to do was go all out and drive directly toward the carriers and try to bring them under the guns of their battleships and cruisers. And so the Japanese commander said, all out attack. So the fast cruisers in the Japanese command raced ahead of the slower battleships. Evans could see this and he pointed Johnston directly at the lead cruiser of the cruiser line, which turned out to be the Japanese cruiser Kumano. Now a destroyer is not set up to defend again or attack major surface combatants. The destroyers were there to screen the six carriers of Taffy 3 against anti-submarine threats and possibly some anti-aircraft threats. But here we have a surface engagement. And now there's only one real weapon that Evans has at his command that could provide some kind of credible defense against a Japanese capital ship. And that are the 10 Mark 14 torpedoes he had in two launchers aboard his ship. So he drove straight at Kumano. Right when he got within range, he turned, opened up his torpedo batteries and fired all 10 of his torpedoes at the head of the cruiser line. Struck and that's Kumano. because the torpedoes are midships or toward the, they're in the center line, but further aft on a Fletcher class, is that correct? Yes, there are two of uh, quadruple torpedo launchers um, the, the forward one is just aft of the number one stack, then there's a number two stack, and then you have the aft torpedo launchers there. Good. And they rotate either port or starboard, but basically he's got to turn broadside for the best firing solution to get his torpedoes over the side. So he got in close, turned, fired his torpedoes, listened for impact, of which it, it, a few minutes later, they did get an impact, blew the bow off Kumano. Kumano came to a stop. Her sister ship, Suzia, stopped to assist. And in one stroke, the, the small Johnston had stalled the entire cruiser line. But as he was turning, Johnston got hit by three 18-inch shells from the battleship Yamato, totally wrecking the ship, taking out her power plant, electrical power, started fires aboard, flooding. And at that moment, Johnston was covered by a rain squall and Yamato lost sight of the target after observing hitting it. While Johnston was in the squall, damage control parties went to work she had, she had lost her after engine, but she still had her forward engine and boiler rooms. So they regained speed. They reconnected the, the electrical and provided power to the main switchboard again off the surviving engine and restored 
communication with their guns, which they had lost during the impact of the shells. I mean, the impact of the shells were so violent that despite going through the deck of Johnston and into the engine rooms and boiler rooms and exploding, just the shock of the hits with the mast broke the SG radar off the top of the mast cracked the gyro in CIC, which is usually rated for like a 20G impact, and threw crewmen up into the air, moving the ship sideways several feet. It's amazing that she didn't go down just from that initial salvo. How long were they in the rain squall conducting damage control? They were only in the rain squall for a few minutes, just enough time to get enough systems back on the line. As they came out of the rain squall, Johnston was faced head-on with battleship Harana, which was not as powerful or as modern as Yamato, but still a battleship with 14-inch guns. She went straight for Harana. As she's going in, she lost steering control. And as the crew worked to try and regain steering, Johnston headed directly at Harana, and they had a little duel. Johnston's five-inch guns against Harano's 14-inch guns. It appears during that exchange, not a whole lot of damage was done to either ship, but Johnston was finally able to break away after regaining steering, and then she went to go rejoin her position in the screen, having fired her primary torpedoes. But It's amazing point, to think about this, that what she's done at this point is she has stopped two cruisers, one by damaging it, the second by forcing it to respond to the first, and has at a minimum delayed and harassed a battleship. That alone is heroic in this circumstance. Yes, while, her, while Harano was engaging with Johnston, she was not going after the carriers, which what she was supposed to do. And like I said, Johnston had now fired her primary torpedoes. She's going to go rejoin the, the screen, even though she's uh, running along at half speed, which is about 17 knots. When she hears the call go out over the radio, Admiral Sprague had finally ordered the destroyer screen commander to send the destroyers in on a torpedo attack. In other words, after Evans and the Johnston under his own initiative had gone straight in alone to deliver his torpedoes, the other destroyers ended up getting the order to go in. And this included uh, sister ships, Harriman and Hull, plus the smaller destroyer escort, Samuel B. Roberts. Evans turned Johnston around to join up with them. And his uh, OOD said, what are we gonna do? And Evans' only response was, maybe we can draw fire around the other ships that still have their weapons. So he was going in purely as a sacrifice so that his shipmates would have a chance to deliver their weapons. And they did. Uh, there was a melee. Torpedoes went into the water. Another cruiser got damaged. Yamato had to turn to the north, effectively taking her and the Japanese commander out of the battle for several crucial minutes. Then the destroyers try to return to the screen. But as Johnston's returning to her position, Evans again notices the most emergent threat. Another line of light cruisers are now focusing on the northernmost carrier, the Gambier Bay, and they're striking her, causing damage. Yamato even got a couple of shells that were close hits, 
that were so powerful explosions that even though they didn't hit the ship, they blew in the plates outside the engine room causing uncontrollable flooding in Gambier Bay. So Evans pointed Johnston at the lead cruiser, which in this case was Tone and Chickama, and attempted to draw their fire away from Gambier Bay. Tone and Chickama were not distracted by this destroyer. So Evans gave that up and saw a new threat developing out on the western edge of the Japanese formation. A line of 11 destroyers led by two light cruisers were setting up for torpedo runs on Taffy 3 as they tried to run away. And so he pointed at the, at the lead cruiser, fi uh, fired at her, and caused her to launch her torpedoes early, missing the Taffy 3 formation, and then shifted his fire to the next destroyer and caused and messed up her torpedo solution. And at this point, what, jo what Johnson had been doing during out this entire battle was acting as a spoiler. Now, the Japanese commander had only one way of winning this battle, and that was to get in quick and destroy American shipping, preferably carriers, before air cover started to amass and start concentrating attacks on his ship. Johnston deprived him of that time. Johnston acted as a spoiler to each probe by the Japanese fleet. First, the heavy cruiser line, then the battleships, then the light cruisers, and then finally the destroyers. Johnston was there, always playing the spoiler. And at that point, the Japanese commander realized as his ship started taking increasing attacks from, from uh, nearby aircraft, provided by Taffy's 1, Taffy's 2, and even some of the Taffy 3 aircraft that had landed on Leyte and gotten rearmed and refueled by the Army troops ashore who were just then setting up the airfields, that the Japanese commander saw he was in a, a situation of diminishing returns. So he withdrew, he, he called a general recall to all the ships, and they broke off their attack of Taffy 3, allowing the formation to get away with only the loss of the one carrier. At that point, Johnston found herself in the midst of those 11 destroyers and two light cruisers who found this troublesome American destroyer in their midst. So they started pounding on her and actually circling around Johnston. Battleship Congo, from a longer range, fired a couple of 14-inch shells that hit Johnston late in the game and killed her remaining engine. Now Johnston had no power. She could not operate her guns. And Commander Evans finally gave the order to abandon ship. Johnston did finally succumb then to enemy fire, and the surviving crew abandoned ship. What happened to Commander Evans? So Commander Evans did oversee the uh, evacuation of Johnston. Despite all of the carnage aboard, only 50 uh, of the crew were killed during the action, and the rest went into the water. Once Evans himself went into the water, he was never seen again. If anyone was with him, they did not survive to tell the tale. Because the crew spent over 50 hours in the water before they were rescued, and most of them were lost 
from Johnston were lost during those 50 hours in the water. Commander Evans would later posthumously be awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions during this battle. There's a story that a Japanese destroyer captain saluted the Johnston crew. Is that true or apocryphal? It's interesting because some of the survivors in the water told the story of a Japanese destroyer that came through the crowd of survivors in the water and that the crew of the destroyer lined up to the rails and the captain saluted the men in the water. Other survivors said, absolutely not. There's no way that could have happened. So um, this was something that I looked into when I was studying the history of Johnston and trying to get at the bottom to. And I actually found the answer in Japanese anime of all places. There is an anime that kind of touches on this. And actually it was the, it was the manga written off of the anime, but they identified the name of the destroyer which none of the American survivors knew as the Yukakazi. And with that name, I was able to go into the Japanese records and confirm that yes, Yukakazi did pass through the survivors and her captain did render a salute to the survivors in the water. And the reason why the Japanese have a record of this is because there were two thoughts of mine on this. Some applauded him uh, saluting a worthy foe. Johnston was a fighting ship and the Japanese prize that among anything else. Others criticized him for saluting a hated foe. But it was because of that controversy in the Japanese records that I was able to confirm the story that some of the survivors told. It is always important to reflect on those who made the ultimate sacrifice in the service of our nation. Thank you for keeping this story alive, Parks. Let's take a moment to reflect on Commander Evans, the crew of USS Johnston, and all the sailors in Taffy 3. I've read The Last of the Tin Can Sailors by James Hornfisher, which chronicles the story of Taffy 3 and the Battle of Samar. What other Taffy 3 books do you recommend? There are a number of books out there, and Horn Fishers, of course, is one of the most easily readable and uh, engrossing tales of what happened. The family of Commander Evans actually recommended a book to me entitled Sea of Thunder by Evan Thomas. It breaks down four of the major personalities in the Battle of Leyte Gulf, including Commander Evans. I found that a very insightful read, getting into the minds of the different commanders who made decisions in that battle. Another one is privately published by Lulu Press. In other words, you contact them and ask them to print a copy for you, and they will. And this is called The Spirit of the Sammy B. It is a, a, a retelling of an interview that uh, Commander Copeland, who commanded the Samuel B. Roberts during the same battle, gave in the early 1950s that really gets you down to the deck plates of the action. And uh, it really helped me understand how the battle was waged. So those two books I found particularly enlightening. I will have to add them both to my collection. I'm pretty sure I've read Evan Thomas in the past. 
Your analysis included a detailed review of oral histories provided by the crew of USS Johnston, other ships in Tappy 3, and as you described, some data that even came from Japanese sailors. What were some of the key insights that came through these records? When I surveyed the wreck of Johnston, I could see all the damage that had happened on the forward two thirds of the ship. The, the, the wreck is broken in two. The stern is completely destroyed, which I think happened after the sinking, but the forward two thirds of the ship are still intact. And you can see all the shell holes. You can see where the major explosions were. And there, how do you make sense of all this damage when you're looking at a wreck? This is where the personal uh, memories of the survivors are crucial because reading through their accounts, hearing them describe different aspects of the battle, it gave me a timeline for all the damage that I saw on the ship and on the wreck. And once I had a timeline based on what a survivor saw, where a survivor was at a certain time when a certain hit that I can see on the wreck happened, things like that, once I could draw all that together, then the overall story of what Johnston accomplished, the even the decisions that Commander Evans made became more clear. So it was really a convergence of the, the history of the ship from all of the official reports and news articles and books written about it, the personal accounts of the survivors, and luckily the Johnston Hole Survivors Association had all of their members write down their memories in the early 90s before a lot of them passed. That was precious. And then having the wreck itself, that's how we could draw together the final story of the USS Johnston. You were able to survey Johnston with the Caledon Oceanic. We'll get into that in a moment. But first, when was USS Johnston discovered and who discovered it? Well, as you may know, Microsoft founder Paul Allen funded a group called Vulcan. It was a subsidiary of his businesses. And an explorer named Rob Kraft and his team aboard the RV Petrel had gone around the world finding numerous shipwrecks. In 2009, they were in the Philippine Sea in the vicinity of the Battle of Samar. And they found the wrecks of the USS St. Lowe, which was another one of the Jeep carriers that was sunk later that day by the first documented kamikaze attack and the Japanese cruiser Chikama that had earlier attacked the Taffy 3 ships sunk by aircraft, those same aircraft that uh, the Japanese commander were worried about. He also found a debris field, and this is in, two, this is in 2009, I'm sorry, and this is in 2019. This debris field at 6,200 meters, which was below the depth of his submersibles, he had remote submersibles, first scanning the area, finding sonar targets, and then a remotely operated vehicle with a camera that he sent down to explore these targets. And he found debris, which the, uh, the Vulcan team identified as coming from a Fletcher-class destroyer. Now, the problem was there were two Fletcher-class destroyers sunk on October 25th, 1944, the Johnston and her sister ship Hull. 
and he wasn't sure which this was. And there was some conflicting details about debris in this debris field that made them wonder about the identification. But they, they eventually concluded that it was probably USS Johnston. And at 6,200 meters, this qualified as the world's deepest shipwreck found to date. Please tell the audience then about Victor Vescova and the Keladan Oceanic. Well, Victor Vescovo is, um, he was a Naval Reserve officer, an intel officer, made a fortune. I'm not exactly privy to how he did it, but he's a man of adventure. He had climbed all the tallest peaks in the world and then decided he wanted to dive the deepest deeps in the world. So he created Caledon Oceanic as a company and through that company, he commissioned to have, to have built a full ocean depth man submersible, which he would call the DSV limiting factor. As it implies, this submersible can go to any depth in the ocean. And he used it to not only dive on Titanic, which is where I was introduced to Victor, but also into the deepest deeps around the world. And then after having accomplished that, he decided uh, to go after shipwrecks. So when he asked me what shipwrecks we could go to during an uh, expedition that he planned in the Pacific, he wanted to explore the Philippine Trench. I told him the story of Taffy 3, and that's when we decided to go after Johnston. I've been exposed to the uh, submarine rescue world, never underway, but conducted surveys on the US, Australian, Singaporean and NATO submersibles and support vessels. Visiting the Caledon Oceanic website, and I'll put the link to that in the show notes for the listeners, it was reminiscent of this world. Can you describe both the DSSV pressure drop, the support vessel, and the DSV limiting factor in more detail? Yes. DSV limiting factor was purposely built as a full ocean depth submersible designed to go to the deepest spot in the world. And Victor wanted to dive to Challenger Deep among all the other deeps and basically be the deepest diving human. And that's what the limiting factor is designed for. It's not actually designed for wreck exploration, but in recent years, we have pushed it into that role. She is supported by a ship, which used to be a... Um, a surveillance ship during the Cold War uh, used, used to be called the USNS Indomitable. It was a Surtas ship. It used to uh, tow the, the tow to rays listen for activity in the ocean. After the Cold War kind of died down, NOAA purchased the Indomitable and renamed her the uh, MacArthur II, and she was used for oceanographic surveys. And actually the Keldish in which I dived on Titanic with in the mirrors and has almost a similar history. It was also a surveillance ship that then got pressed into oceanographic work. And then once a submersible was tied to it, then it became a support ship for the deep ocean submersible. Victor bought it and renamed it Pressure Drop and did the Five Deeps expedition with that, which uh, he was just uh, awarded the Explorers Club Medal for just this past weekend in New York City. Well, congratulations to Victor. How did you get connected to Caledon Oceanic and end up then on the Johnston Expedition? 
Well, because of my work on Titanic, Victor asked around for a Titanic expert to be his guide when he dove on Titanic, and I was put forward to assist him on that expedition. Once on Titanic, Victor and I discovered that we were kind of kindred spirits. We're fellow geeks. We have similar likes on a, any number of issues. And uh, after he finished his five deeps expedition and uh, decided to continue diving into various other deeps that were not as deep as the big five, but still deep enough, he also said, well, what kind of wrecks do you think we'll find in the vicinity of these other deeps that I'm going to go in? And in 2020, he had uh, scheduled a, what he called the Ring of Fire expedition, which was going to explore a lot of the deeps along the edge of the Pacific tectonic plate in the uh, Western Pacific. And I said, if you're going near the Philippine Trench, there was this battle off Samar where you might find some good wrecks. And at this time, the news about Vulcan's discovery of the Johnston debris site was made known. And in Vulcan's examination of the debris site, just before it got too deep for their ROV to continue, they noticed a slide area where some massive object, presumably the hull of the ship, which was not present in the debris field, had slid down a slope toward the trench. And that little, that little trail going down to the trench was like a, waving a carrot in front of Victor. He wanted to follow that tr uh, trench and see where it led to. And that's kind of what cemented us on going on to Johnston. What was it like to be aboard DSV limiting factor during the dive? People always ask me during my dives, you know, what's it like? You know, if you see Titanic, it must be so amazing. You must be so emotional. What's it like to dive on Johnston? First of all, when you're when you when you launch, you just go straight down. You're falling for about an hour and a half. And you sit there and on Titanic, Victor actually played the movie Titanic on his phone. And we watched that for a while. But once we get on the site, once we're actually approaching the wreck, I am in pure data acquisition mode. I am all eyes out, looking at detail. You don't get to see much in the lights that you carry with your submersible. So you might see a section of the ship, any ship or wreck, and you may have to figure out where you are. On Titanic, it can be very confusing. You'll just come up to a wall of rivets and go, where am I? Oh, here's where we are. I am totally 100% absorbed with the wreck during the entire dive. And when Victor finally says, okay, we're out of battery power, we've got to leave, that's the only thing that snaps me out of that mode. And then the dive up is like, or the ascent up where he releases the weights and we're just coming up, then I'm just oh my gosh, I just saw Johnston. I just saw the bridge where Commander Evans got wounded. I just saw those guns still trained out as though they're still engaging the enemy. You know, Johnston's sitting there upright on the ocean floor, buried up to a waterline. She still looks like she's underway. Her guns are trained toward the enemy. She's still in her battered, sunken condition, still looks fierce and ready to continue the fight. 
It must be awe-inspiring. After the fact, it is. But at the time, I'm just taking in the data. What are the major findings of the survey of the Johnston? I like to say, and this is the way I approach any wreck. The wreck is the last surviving witness to whatever. If, if Titanic disaster for the Johnston is the Battle of Samar, what happened to Johnston? The wreck is the last surviving witness. And she tells an honest story. Steel doesn't lie. Uh, human memory can be fallible. People have a certain bias, but steel will tell you the rest of the story. Johnston's story, until we dove on her, was told through official reports. And those official reports were put together by men who survived the battle, may not have seen everything, may have not had the context of everything. Therefore, the story could be incomplete. When I saw the wreck, I could see support for a lot of the descriptions that were made in the reports by the senior surviving officer, Lieutenant Hagen, and some of the other survivors from the wreck. But then I also saw more that they didn't see. I saw more explosions. I saw more damage that when I put it together with the survivors who described things, they may not have known what they were describing, but just the way they described it, a, a fuller picture of what Johnston did started to come together. I think after our survey of the wreck, we found out, we learned that Johnston did more, that Evans was more of a spoiler to the Japanese attack plan than we ever could tell from the conventional history. We really needed the wreck to fill in the, the final parts of the story. I understand that during the mission, you were communicating with the author that we discussed earlier, James Hornfisher, who was in decline, and his son. Would you share what transpired through those interactions? I, I knew that Jim Hornfisher was very ill when we went out to Johnston. So as soon as we got back, I sent everything that we had gathered on the ship, all the imagery. I took over 500 photos with my iPhone out the viewport, sent all of that to the Hornfishers so that Jim could see this ship that he had told the story about, you know, in, in, his, in his famous books. Actually, Jim and his son David were working on, auto, on a biography of Commander Evans when he became ill. I think those pictures, which I gave permission for them to use in the book, will help that book be a fuller account of Commander Evans's life. Because the one thing that, that drives us, like Victor and me particularly, is we do this to get the story out. Some explorers exercise proprietary rights over the imagery that they capture. And I understand that there could be some financial considerations there, but Victor pays for these expeditions out of his own pocket. He's not looking to profit or make money off of this. So whatever we grab, we share. We gave it to the Navy. I worked on a full analysis report of the wreck, which I gave to the Navy. This is not something that I was paid to do. It's just something that I did because it needed to be done. The story 
needs to be told. And that's what drives us on these wrecks. What is your next deep sea project? Next month, we are headed out to the waters off Midway Island. We want to resurvey the wreck of USS Yorktown, which was last imaged in 1998 by Bob Ballard. And then we want to find the rest of the Kido Butai, the Japanese carriers that were sunk. Uh, Vulcan imaged Kaga uh, in 2019, so we won't go after Kaga. Um, but we are going after Akagi, Soryu, and hopefully Hiryu. Uh, we're taking the Japanese with us because they are these are their ships. And whatever we find is going to be made available not only to the U.S. Navy History and Heritage Command, but also to the Japanese nation. Parks, I was able to connect with you on LinkedIn. Are there other social media or other means for people to connect with you and learn about your latest adventures? I do have a Facebook page called Parks Stevenson Expeditions. This is a public page. I do have a private page, which is for family and friends. So I don't usually uh, uh, approve friend requests there. But the expeditions page is open to all. I try to make myself as available there as possible to discuss these topics and answer questions. Well, if you send me the link, I'll include that in the show notes. Okay. Parks, thank you for joining me today on Preble Hall to discuss locating and surveying the USS Johnston. I hope we can connect in the future to discuss your future undersea adventures. Steve, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I would love nothing more than to discuss future undersea adventures as long as I keep having them. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.